Today's episode is brought to you by Mentos Pure Fresh Gum. It's time to get energized. Welcome to Skim This. So, how's everyone's week going? Believe me, we get it. This is coming out at 6 a.m. on Friday, and all anyone can talk about is how slowly people in Nevada are counting ballots. The skim will give you major updates when they happen, but there are some other things you need to know which we can tell you about now. First, we'll look at the Trump campaign's legal strategy to try and stop the vote count in certain key states and to influence which ballots are counted in other states. Then, we'll look at one state where the 2020 election is going to spill over into January 2021. Sorry, Georgia. After that, as for the things we do know about the election, there's a first for everything. We'll take a look at some of the history being made this year and one woman whose election marked a major milestone. Growing up, there weren't any examples of someone like me succeeding in politics or business or in many cases, even the arts and popular culture. And finally, we've got some expert advice for dealing with anxiety. Then hopefully when it's safe to again, you can go out and get that manicure that you totally definitely deserve after a nail-biting week. All right, let's do it. While this election all hangs on ballots being counted, it hasn't stopped President Trump's campaign from filing legal suits in the states that will decide the election. But will these legal challenges actually have any impact on the outcome of the election? We called up a legal analyst to find out. I'm Caroline Polisi. Polisi is an adjunct lecturer at Columbia Law School, and she told us these lawsuits being filed mainly fall into two buckets. I call the first bucket really the threat of voter fraud bucket. So President Trump is using this idea that there is mass voter fraud going on, being perpetrated on a large scale across the country, or rather only in states in which he may be losing at the moment. In one lawsuit filed in Michigan yesterday, the Trump campaign said, hey, there are some potentially concerning actions going down at polling places. So let's stop the count. But a judge threw the case out, saying that the evidence the campaign provided was just hearsay and that there wasn't evidence of wrongdoing by voting officials. Similar challenges are happening in other tight states. But Polisi told us those challenges aren't likely to go anywhere because there isn't any evidence of widespread voter fraud in the states where the Trump campaign has filed suit. A basic legal concept is that you have to have a claim, right? And so the claim that they're stating in many of these cases is that, well, maybe there could be voter fraud. They really don't have any direct evidence of things happening that would indicate to a judge, say, that, look, there's some funny business going on here and we better get to the bottom of it. Certainly, there's no indication that, that counting votes should stop unless something happens to indicate to a reasonable judge that there could be an issue, a widespread issue of potential voter fraud, these cases aren't going to really get past go. Regardless of whether these lawsuits succeed, Polisi thinks more of them will keep being filed by the Trump campaign. It's something the campaign had been gearing up for since before people even started casting their ballots. Which brings us to the other kind of lawsuit we're seeing from Team Trump and other Republicans. They're about which ballots states should be counting in the first place. This has been coming up in Pennsylvania. A state law there says ballots can't arrive after election day. But a few weeks ago, 
Pennsylvania's state Supreme Court said, Yeah, but given COVID, it should be okay for ballots to arrive up to three days after Election Day, so long as they were postmarked by Election Day. So the issue in Pennsylvania is that the state Supreme Court issued a ruling that really expanded the rights of voters, meaning it interpreted a statute, a legislative statute that says votes can't come in late. And they essentially said, well, you know what, given the pandemic, we, you know, we want to promote access to the polls and it's only fair and just that we expand that time frame to three days after. Now, that's controversial because state courts can't change legislative decisions. This Pennsylvania lawsuit made it all the way to the Supreme Court, which ruled that those ballots that showed up after Election Day should count for now. But just in case we want to change our minds later, put them in a separate pile. Given Pennsylvania's essential role in this election, Trump campaign officials are saying, we're not done here. They've filed a lawsuit that is attempting to overturn the Supreme Court's decision. Polisi says whether this lawsuit is going to play a big role in this election comes down to just how close Pennsylvania is. The margin of victory would have to be so small that this subset of mail-in ballots, we're not talking about mail-in ballots in general. I want to make that very clear because some people get confused. We're talking about a really small subset of those mail-in ballots. If that is the determinative factor between this election, let's say Pennsylvania is the deciding state here and those electoral votes are going to make the decision, then and only then would the Supreme Court step in. So those are the two types of election lawsuits we're seeing so far. Polisi thinks it's unlikely either type is going to play a huge role in the election, whether it's because we haven't seen evidence of any widespread voter fraud or because the Supreme Court just doesn't want to get in the way when 50 states are capable of ensuring a fair vote themselves. They are likely watching what's on the news now, biting their fingernails and saying, oh my goodness, I sincerely hope that it doesn't get to us. The Supreme Court is notorious for not wanting to step in. You know, the Supreme Court is supposed to be insulated from political questions. Well, what could be more political than deciding an American election? Despite the long odds of a court case deciding the election, these lawsuits aren't going away. And speaking of something else that's not going away, let's talk about WTF is going on in the Senate. Results about who's going to control the House are pretty clear. That chamber will be controlled by Democrats for another two years. But at the time we publish this, the balance of power in the Senate is still TBD. As a reminder, going into this election, the Republicans controlled the Senate with 53 seats. Dems haven't had a Senate majority since early 2015, and since then, they've been on a mission to regain control. They needed a net gain of four seats to do that, and so far, that hasn't happened. Dems managed to flip two seats in Colorado and Arizona, but Republicans took back a seat in Alabama. Add in the expected results from a few other states, and Republicans are predicted to have 50 seats to 48 for Democrats. And the only thing left to be cleared up is in Georgia. And it could take until January to know how this fight ends. According to Georgia law, if a candidate wins but doesn't get more than 50% of the total vote, you gotta have a redo. And because of course 2020, both Senate races in Georgia might be heading to runoffs because nobody hit 50%. 
Regardless of who wins the presidential election, these Georgia races are gonna be in the national spotlight. Since if Dems somehow won both and created a 50-50 tie in the Senate, who has control there would come down to the tie-breaking vote of the VP. So if you live in Georgia, we're sorry. You'll probably be getting calls and seeing TV ads nonstop until January, just when you thought 2020 was on its way to being over. These days, we're all spending a lot of time in the same routines, and it's easy to get stuck in a rut. The solution? Refresh and energize with Mentos Pure Fresh Gum. It comes in a package that's easy to pop in your bag or keep in the car. Whether you need a burst of freshness to get over the 3 p.m. slump or a way to stay energized after a workout, Mentos Pure Fresh Gum has you covered. Get a burst of freshness with Mentos Pure Fresh Gum. Go to Mentos.com to find your perfect piece today. All right, so while there are still some big 2020 stories that haven't yet played out, a lot has already been settled. And this election has brought about some important trends and historic firsts worth celebrating. Big picture, there was a huge push to get people to vote this year. At least 67% of Americans showed up to the polls or mailed in their ballots for the 2020 election. While that's actually not that high compared to other countries, according to the United States Election Project, it's still around a 6% increase from the 2016 and 2012 elections, which has left a ton of experts reminding us, no matter who you vote for, more people voting is a good thing for democracy. Plus, Biden currently has the most votes of any American presidential candidate ever, even more than Obama in 2008. And Trump is predicted to have the second highest. Some other trends deserve a shout out too. 227 women ran for the U.S. House on Republican tickets in this year's election. That's almost double what we saw in 2016. And according to the New York Times, at least 22 of them are already heading to the House. Plus, Republican women carved out room for themselves in the Senate. Maine's Susan Collins just got elected for a fifth term, making her the longest serving female Republican in the history of the U.S. Senate. And Wyoming will welcome its first female senator in January. Republican Cynthia Lemus. That matters. Republicans have been long criticized for not having a lot of female representation. Michelle Swers, a professor of government at Georgetown, says this year we're seeing that shift in a big way. So you had a big effort to recruit more Republican women, and Republican women won in safe seats and they won in some swing seats. She says that there are now more female Republican representatives who are Latina or working mothers. So Republicans have more women to talk about. They have more minorities to talk about. And all that new representation in the Republican Party could translate into new policies. So you did not have very many women with children in the Republican caucus before, and now you have a few more. Uh, and so that could influence discussions related to what to do about paid family leave. So now that the election is over, particularly at the beginning, the Republicans might be more willing uh, to put things into a coronavirus stimulus bill or something like that. Republicans weren't the only ones diversifying their presence in D.C. Democrats elected slightly more women overall, including more women of color. Oh, and remember the squad from 2018? AOC, 
Ilhan Omar, Rashida Tlaib, and Ayanna Presley, each of them won re-election this year. And as the results keep trickling through, there are some new names that you might hear mentioned alongside the squads, once the new session begins in January. Missouri elected its first black female rep, former nurse and Black Lives Matter activist Cori Bush. In Washington, former Tacoma Mayor Marilyn Strickland became the first black member of Washington's state delegation, as well as the first Korean-American woman to serve in Congress. And for the first time ever, New Mexico's House delegation will be entirely women of color. And according to the Center for American Women in Politics, a record 18 Native American women ran for Congress, with a record three winning their races. Despite all these historic firsts, Swerve says increased representation in government doesn't always translate into political breakthroughs. So a divided Congress is never a recipe for lots of legislative accomplishment. You're not going to get a Republican Senate and a Democratic House on the same page. So at least in D.C., smaller, less ambitious proposals might be the only thing Democrats and Republicans, no matter how diverse they are, can agree on. But others are more optimistic, including someone who achieved another historic first that we haven't mentioned yet. Democrat Sarah McBride, who at the age of 30, just became the first ever transgender U.S. state senator. Growing up, there weren't any examples of someone like me succeeding in politics or business or in many cases, even the arts and popular culture. McBride's obsession with politics started when she was just 13, when she watched a certain Illinois state senator by the name of Barack Obama speak at the 2004 Democratic National Convention and realized politicians really could be as diverse as the voters they serve. And now, representing her community in the Delaware Senate, she's in a position she always dreamed of, but feared wouldn't be available to her. I think as a young person, particularly as a young LGBTQ person still in the closet. Um, Politics and advocacy and government felt like the place where you can make the most amount of change. And as I struggled with not only who I am, but how I fit into this world, it seemed like the place where I could make space for more people to live fully and freely, whether they're LGBTQ or not. The message that this race sends to a young LGBTQ person who's struggling and wondering whether they fit into this world and wondering whether this democracy has a place for them. The message that this race sends that this democracy is big enough for them too, that message wasn't sent by me. It was sent by the voters of the first Senate district. McBride's election comes after several years of setbacks for transgender rights. In President Trump's first year in office, he ordered a ban on transgendered persons joining or serving in the military. The same year, he ordered that schools ignore previous guidance from the Obama administration that transgender students should be protected within schools. Even with all of that happening at a legislative level, McBride says campaigning as an openly transgender in 2020 wasn't as scary as it sounds. Even though social media responses are often extreme in either direction, McBride says voters that she met responded positively. My gender identity never comes up with voters. One of the things that I'm pleased by is that that while the media has noted the nature of my candidacy and the message that it can send, it's also noted that I have run an issues-oriented campaign, that from day one of this campaign, we have been talking about kitchen table issues. I believe that's why we won this race. It's because we talked about the issues and voters were deciding based on those issues, based on our experience, based on our capacity and ability to deliver meaningful results. 
uh, not on our identity. But McBride knows getting elected is just the beginning when it comes to delivering on the changes she wants to bring about. And even though Democrats and Republicans may be duking it out in Congress over the next few years, McBride believes there's potential for cross-party collaboration that could address some of these issues. There is legislation that um, I, I'm still hopeful that we can advocate for and push for and fight for and pass the Equality Act, which passed the U.S. House of Representatives with a bipartisan majority. The Equality Act would ensure explicit protections for LGBTQ people across daily life. But sitting still and just hoping for change isn't the only thing you can do if there are changes that you want to see happen. McBride says, remember, politics isn't just the presidential race or even what happens on a federal level. No matter who you are, you can run for office locally. And there are a ton of other ways to get involved, too. State legislatures are the place where the rubber meets the road on public policy. And so advocating to your local and state legislatures for the policies you support on the range of issues that you care about, that will go a long way in making change. So what's the skim? There were a lot of big symbolic victories in this year's election. There are even more women and more women of color on both sides of the aisle. And an even more diverse group of politicians have won seats in state legislatures. And while a divided Congress can make political progress feel painfully slow, Increased representation means a more inclusive snapshot of issues could get taken into account, no matter who's in the White House or runs the House or Senate. To end the show, there are two kinds of anxiety. We wanted to know if it's possible to get a break from the chaos. There's productive anxiety and unproductive anxiety. So we checked in with someone who knows how we're feeling to get some professional advice on how to deal when things seem overwhelming. I'm Lori Gottlieb. I am a psychotherapist and the author of Maybe You Should Talk to Someone. We asked Lori what to do when we're feeling anxious, and she told us it's important to recognize what kind of anxiety we're experiencing. Productive anxiety is actually really helpful and healthy. What it does is, it is when you are reasonably worried about something, and so it motivates you to take action to protect yourself. Unproductive anxiety, on the other hand, is obsessive rumination. It's checking the headlines all day long. It is worrying in your head about what's going to happen in two hours, in two days, in two weeks, in two months. And it doesn't motivate you to do anything different. It just keeps you stuck in place. Either of these sound familiar? So with unproductive anxiety, we do this thing called futurizing or catastrophizing, where we start to worry about something that not only hasn't happened yet, but may never happen. So what I really suggest to people is that they schedule a time during the day to worry. And I know that sounds kind of counterintuitive because why would you want to purposely worry? But you're already worried. And it's kind of like how people check their emails at a certain time of day because they want to be productive the rest of the day. It's the same thing with worry. If you can say to yourself, you know, you have a thought and you get a little bit anxious, you can say, oh, but at one o'clock, I'm going to get to worry about this. So I don't have to deal with this right now. And it just clears your mind. Taking time in your schedule to process and think about your fears or what's making you anxious can actually help you let go of that anxiety. We know it's not easy to take a step back when you're seeing news alerts constantly on your phone or you can't stop checking Slack. 
and you shouldn't ignore what's going on. But you can and should choose how and when you engage with the headlines, so that every time you hit refresh, you aren't feeding that anxiety. It's also important to remember that choosing to take a break from the world's problems isn't something everyone is able to do. So if you are able, it's something to be grateful for. All of these things are incoming and they're making you really anxious or sad or despairing or whatever is happening for you. Um, you can easily take a quick reset, which means walk away, go to a different location, just a different room, look out the window, walk outside for a minute and take 10 breaths in very slowly and 10 breaths out. And you would be surprised how quickly you can reset and then go back to what you're doing. You're gonna go back with much more energy and much more perspective, but you need to have those breaks. Otherwise you start drowning in all of the incoming stuff. But what happens when you can't turn off all the noise in your head? When we are thinking our thoughts, we're not feeling our feelings. It's a distraction from our feelings. What I think would really help people right now is to actually feel their feelings. So what's underneath that thought of helplessness? That's not a feeling, that's a thought. So maybe it is sadness, maybe it's grief, maybe it's loss, maybe it's anxiety. And then you can say, what do I know works for me when I am feeling sad or anxious? And for some people that is taking a walk around the block, for other people it is connecting and maybe not talking about the thing that is worrying you. But you know, a whole other world is going on too at the same time. I think the thing about the human condition is that we can feel many things at once. And sometimes people get really stuck in, I'm just feeling this one thing right now, the sadness, this anxiety, but there's also joy, there's also hope. And so I, I want people to make room for the complexity of our feelings and not make them mutually exclusive. So what can you do if you're anxious? Again, if it's taking a walk, if it's connecting with a friend, if it's reading a book, we know what helps us. And I think we have to remember that we have more control over that than anything right now. And you shouldn't just do this for yourself because everyone from your parents to your roommate to even your dog is also feeling all of the things. And you can help the people in your life manage their own stress and anxiety by managing yours. We talk so much about the contagion of the coronavirus, but I'll tell you what's even more contagious is the emotional tenor of the people you're around. So if you're around a lot of negativity, if you're around a lot of anxiety, anxiety spreads like wildfire. So if you do connect with people, and I think we should, let's talk about what we can do in a positive direction. I don't mean be a Pollyanna, I mean, let's talk about, okay, so here we are and here's the situation. And now what can we do that will be positive? How can we have a positive impact going forward? No matter what happens with the election, one thing won't change, which is that the things that you truly believe in, you can make a difference in. For more on how to manage stress and anxiety, theskim.com slash well is our home for all things health, mental and physical. Thanks for listening to Skim This. This podcast was skimmed by Alex Carr and Luke Vargas, with additional help from Peter Bonaventure and Kara Long. And I'm your host, Justine Davey. We'll be back in your feed again next Friday. For more Skim and to sign up for our daily newsletter, head on over to theskim.com.